This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Politics. I'm Jeff Bloodworth, your host. God and war. Um, I'm not sure what could be uh, two bigger topics. Um, One could write whole libraries, and there are whole libraries filled with books on just those topics uh, singularly. Uh, Ray Herbersky is not... um, one to give himself a, a small task. He wanted to write about both God and war and the United States. So his book, God and War, American Civil Religion Since 1945, um, <laughs> this, is, this is a big topic. But um, Professor Herbersky has done a, a really fine job in this book, and he is looking at the way in which Americans sort see uh, themselves as religious people, especially through the crucible of, of three wars, meaning the Cold War, uh, the Vietnam War, and the War on Terror. And uh, Ray Haberski's book uh, has been uh, well-received by, um, by, by critics. I read it. I interviewed him. Um, it, it, it's a really fine book. I hope you listen to the interview and then go out and buy the book. Ray Herbersky, how are you doing? Good. Jeff. Good. How are you? Good. Good. Welcome to New Books and Politics. Thank you. So, Ray, why don't, why don't you we start off? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your educational background, your biography? Right. Sure. So, I come from uh, uh, from New York. I grew up on Long Island, and then went to high school in Woodstock, New York. Oh, really? And I, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was interesting, um, to say the least. You know, uh, a Long Island kid coming up to uh, to land of hippies in mm-hmm. some ways, and, and and good music. Yeah. Then I went to uh, SUNY Albany, uh, the State University of New York at Albany, and I did my undergraduate there in history and political science, and then t- and did a master's there in history. And it was while I was there that um, I played tennis all throughout college, hmm. and I met a woman who was on the board of regents for New York State, and she offered me an opportunity to go to Russia for uh, as long as I wanted, basically, after I'd, I'd finished hmm. my master's. And so I took her up on it, and I went to a, a city called Tula, which is south of Moscow, yeah. where uh, the Russians make semovars and uh, the Kalishnikov rifle actually huh. comes from there. And I became very much uh, sort of interested in Cold War uh, politics and Cold War America and Cold War relations hmm. with the Russians. And I, I was determined at that point to... Uh, probably seek out who I thought was uh, the finest Cold War historian at the moment, John Lewis Gaddis, mm-hmm. and try to study with him. And so I applied to Ohio University for my PhD program, and I got in. 
And I ended up going to Ohio University and entering into the Contemporary History Institute, just like you. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, then, and that's where I met John Gaddis. And um, he was my uh, professor for the first few years while I was working on my PhD. And uh, I still think his course in the Contemporary History Institute was the single best course I've had huh. in my life. Wow. Um, what ended up happening, though, was that, that Gaddis was, it was pretty clear that he was, uh, was going to move on. He was moving on to Yale. And by the time he was uh, had made that decision, I had sort of shifted my focus away from Cold War diplomacy, um, more to U.S. intellectual history. I yeah. was more I seemed to fit better with um, with that particular field, and so I started to study with Charles Alexander, who had written on everything from 1920s. Uh, controversies about public art and intellectuals mm-hmm. to the Eisenhower administration. Yeah. And frankly, Charlie and I just clicked. Yeah. Uh, I found him to be just a wonderful, wonderful uh, advisor and, and mentor. And um, he and Gaddis, no doubt, had the biggest influences on my writing. Yeah. Um, so when I finished up my PhD at, at Ohio University, I was, uh, I was an intellectual historian, but I did my first book on the way that movies had changed the idea of art over the course of the 20th century mm-hmm. and the debates about that. And then um, I got a job shortly after I finished my PhD at, at Marion University in Indianapolis, a Catholic liberal arts university. And I've been here for uh, over 12 years. So that's that's sort of the the short form of all that. Yeah, and and enormously, if you might you might add, enormously prolific. I mean, this is your fourth book. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that. Just talk for how do you do that um, with such a heavy teaching load? Yeah, well, like you know, uh, not easily. Yeah. Um, I, listen, we we both went through a program that was really good on yeah. uh, on bringing who I think are really just good folks together, good graduate students together. Yeah. yeah. Um, the program is designed to get you to teach well before you graduate, and to get you to publish. Yeah. And uh, so when I when I was done with my, with my dissertation, I mean, Charlie had worked with me so well that. I basically uh, wrote an introduction and it added little to my conclusion, and that was it. The book huh. came out. Yeah. Um, so it was within my first year of, of uh, being out of OU that it came out, hmm. and then after that, it was you know it was just I did a second book that was uh, sort of a parallel study on uh, a similar period. Yeah. Uh, I looked at sort of post nineteen forty five movie culture in New York City and the yeah. decline of censorship. Yeah. And then the third one was a co authored book with yeah. uh, Laura Whitburn Caller on hmm. a Supreme Court case. Hmm. So, and then this book, God and War, that was that number four. Yeah, yeah, so, it's um, it, it, it's yeah. impressive. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I think a generation ago, people, people like like you and me who taught at you know places that weren't research yeah. universities, right. they, they just didn't publish. Um, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, and yeah. there are very good yeah. reasons. You know, because you want to have a life and see your family. Yeah. Right. But you know, right. what I find interesting is there's so many good books coming out. You, you know. Being the you know, in, you are a host now on uh, the New Books and History Network, right? That you know, yeah. you, you there's so many good books coming out by people who aren't at research uh, universities. Absolutely, um, and yeah. it, it, you That's know, absolutely true. Yeah, and you're a, a prototype of how it can be done. I, first, I really like the book, and I think I really you know, really? And I think this is like contemporary history at its best. Um, Thanks, because Jeff. I appreciate that. You're cast of characters. You know, I mean, there's the you know, yeah. maybe just talk about. I mean. 
I, I haven't looked at the archives, um, what archives you consulted, but I mean, you go from, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr and Jimmy Carter to Mark Hatfield. I mean, there's some, you know, the name, you know, yeah. the sort of names in there that you're like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember that person. I knew they were significant. <laughs> right. And and you actually were writing about them. And, you know, this really is kind of like, I guess, the you know, the draft 1.5. If journalists do the first draft of history, this is mm-hmm. draft 1.5 of, you know, Richard John Niehaus. Right. What uh, what kind of archives did you consult? Where did you do a lot of the research on this? Yeah, so when I started this project, I thought that um, what I wanted to look at was the debate over war in the United States and how religious language played a role in that. And Mm -hmm. what I thought I was going to find initially was uh, a very rich debate, uh, people taking up sides in this fight. And in fact, I, I think not... It shouldn't have been that much of a surprise to me. It, it wasn't like that. What I found was that very few people who were deeply uh, sort of embedded in their churches or, or their faith really took up uh, a strong stance against American wars from World War II through to the to the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than more than that, that I, I found was that people almost sacralized the nation as it got into a war. Hmm. Because to denounce America's war effort would be to, in in effect, denounce the people who were willing to kill and die for the nation. Yeah. And you know, again, if if anybody leads a religious congregation, you know, you're leading people. You're leading Americans. You're leading people whose sons, uh, potentially daughters, now yeah. are going to be doing these sorts of things, sacrificing for the nation. So it's a really tricky thing uh, to bring religion to bear against the nation. And so that's yeah. how it evolved. But there were plenty of people who tried to walk the line in between criticizing the nation mm-hmm. and using religion to do so, and at the same time not not going completely over to sort of a political theology. Yeah, you know, it, it was it was interesting because they had to still speak to sort of national issues, but not do it in a language that was exclusive to one church. You know, to make their case heard beyond uh, you know a tiny congregation or a tiny. Uh, group of supporters, which I, I think I, I don't know as much about pacifism as I do about civil religion. Yeah, but I think that's been one of the key problems is that pacifism, for the most part, has been localized in particular uh, churches and particular hmm. denominations, and even very small groups within those denominations. And um, it has never been received as sort of a, a, a really broad-based, very popular movement for a variety of reasons. But I think that's that's one of them. It's often quite exclusive to the language that people use from their churches. Yeah. Why, don't, why don't you explain a little bit about – you start off with Lincoln's bequest and, and sort of yeah. define what, – what is it we're talking about, civil religion? Yeah, okay. So <laughs> one of the things that I could not seem to get around was uh, this concept of civil religion. Yeah. And I, it has a long history. It has a long history and somewhat of a, a, a conflicted history in um, U.S. academia only because it's been so closely associated with Robert Bell, a sociologist yeah. at University of California, Berkeley who in 1967 came out with this very famous uh, essay called Civil Religion in America about the ritualization of American politics, that there are rituals in American politics just like there are rituals Hmm. in churches. And uh, by doing this, Americans uh, sacralize to a certain extent uh, their their sort of political culture. Um, He focuses a lot on presidents, and not surprisingly, because they are sort of the the figurehead, sort of the point that everybody can, can turn to, and they have... They have the the lead in many of these rituals, but what I found 
what was so interesting was that while I was writing this book, a lot of other people who were coming out with books about American war mm-hmm. in which they seemed to be incapable of getting around the ideas of a religion. So Harry Stout and George Rabble both wrote about the Civil War and both he- used civil religion heavily yeah. as a lens to understand wh- how people debated the war, yeah. how they understood it in religious terms. Again, both of them, both Stout and, and Rabble, show that it, they're not talking about religion in a very specific sense. It's not one church's language that they're using, yeah. but more of a general sense that there's a general religious dialogue going on about war. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, um, Andrew Preston came out with a great book about American foreign policy and religion. Oh, uh, yeah. Of course, the entire United States history. It's an excellent yeah. book. Oh, that book uh, is, Will, a, is a tour de force. It, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly comprehensive. And yeah. I think. You know, here's a guy who is um, – he's really opened up a lot of different streams for people to start investigating because he took the time to sort of you know, pick through uh, the, the different ways that different uh, religions have related to American foreign policy. But even he too, near the end of his introduction, <laughs> one of the last things he leaves a reader with before they launch into this very long book about religion and American foreign policy is a small treatise on civil religion hmm. yeah, B- yeah, because it is – civil religion captures that, that place, hmm. uh, that intersection point between a lot of different religions. Well, when they have to talk about the nation, they turn to civil religion. Uh, Will Inboden did the same thing for the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I began to think that this, this you know, something's happening. Um, I, I, another person, John Ebel, who wrote about World War I soldiers mm-hmm. and the use of civil religion. Um, so I started to think that there's, there's something to this idea that uh, when you talk about war and the nation, that it's really hard not to consider uh, the idea of civil religion. And so I started to read more deeply into the literature about it. And what I found really interesting, or sort of a discovery, was that um, Robert Bella, in that original essay, yeah. I think the reason that he comes to use civil religion, it's, it's no mistake that he does this in the middle of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. that he comes to understand civil religion in America because of war. And if, you know, for anybody who thinks in those terms about uh, American wars and the way that uh, people think about it as a moral debate, they almost always have to go back to Abraham Lincoln because here's a person who dealt with the greatest catastrophe, uh, most violent catastrophe in American history Mm -hmm. uh, within uh, a nation that is steeped in uh, religious uh, thought, religious practice, uh, preaching. And um, people, they simply turn to religion to try to figure out what to make mm-hmm. of this catastrophe. And Lincoln, of course, as president, has to do it too. And he creates, at least in my mind, this really interesting and some, in some ways very difficult legacy of relating to war through God. Because mm. he knows that people are going to do it anyway, and so <laughs> he has to address it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so my, my, uh, my contention is that what Lincoln's bequest is, is – um, in his two speeches, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural, he deals with the two most uh, troubling issues when it comes to a nation going to war. The first one in the Gettysburg Address is that within war, you can find some sort of moral uh, resolution, mm-hmm. that the country can be made more moral, mm-hmm. uh, better overall in some mm-hmm. in, you know, in a long-view way mm-hmm. through a war. That it, it can't be fought simply because two sides can't agree on something. That, hmm. that, that war itself transforms the nation into something else, makes it into something bigger, more whole. But then in the second inaugural, I think he looks out at you know, a war-torn nation and a population that is still calling upon God to defend its, its side in the conflict, 
Hmm. And he wonders, you know, that after all the bloodshed, all the violence, um, really after all the terror, would people still think that God has some sort of, is playing some sort of active role uh, in the nation? You know, they could, could they actually claim that after all that had happened? Yeah. And he, and of course he knows, yes, that's hmm. exactly what's going to happen. But yeah, at least yeah. he's going to call them, you know, the call the question hmm. uh, to people. So, so that I, I, I see that as, as Lincoln's um, legacy for uh, you know, successive generations of Americans, but especially really American presidents mm-hmm. and theologians who have some public role, hmm. because I think they have to take up, you can't get around the yeah. two issues that Lincoln dealt with, you know? Yeah, I think that's interesting, because you were saying that, you know, when you were thinking about writing this book, you were encountering other authors, you know, Andrew Preston, Harry Stout, yeah. who were taking religion seriously. And right. I hadn't thought about your book in this way, but it definitely is. It's part of a whole spate of books and yeah. a whole kind of generation of historians, although Harry Stout is, you know, older than you and I. Um, yeah who were taking religion seriously again. Right. Right. I mean, it seems like for a generation, at least in the realm of sort of American foreign policy and American Mm -hmm. political history, like it used to be, you know, in in your field of intellectual history, you know, the the history of, you know, American religion was its own subfield, right? That's right. It didn't talk to other subfields. And it's, it's now like, it, it seems, why do you think that is? Why all of a sudden, you know, in the past five or six years, you know, I found myself, uh, reading Mark Knoll for the first time about five or six years ago, you know, and as yeah. a historian of you know uh, of the United yeah. States, how could I have <laughs> you know him. you know, Mar- I know understanding our past? Mark Knoll, I mean, is you know he's the what the top you know you know historian. Oh, he's probably the finest religious historian we have. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, I, it, yeah. It, in fact, I, yeah, I ahead. think the, the thing with even with Knoll's, Knoll's career is interesting because I think he's gone from being someone who dealt almost exclusively with a certain era of American evangelical uh, Protestant history. Yeah. There's somebody who is speaking to all of American religion. And then even more than that, he wrote this great book on um, uh, civil, uh, the Civil War as a theological crisis. Huh. It's, it's, it's a brilliant book. But, yeah. of course, it covers all the different churches, yeah. uh, all the different faiths. And it does so, though, through the lens of the most pivotal moment in American history. So he's become himself much broader. Yeah. In how in the, in the audiences that he's intending to address uh, yeah. through, the, through his topics, I think that plays a big role in it. You know. Yeah. So, I think. can you tell me what what, what brought you uh, to be interested in specifically? I mean, if you're part of this sort of you know movement, yeah. self conscious right. or not, what what brought yeah. what brought you to the study of a uh, you know America, trying to bring the history of you know sort of religion in America yeah. into you know the mainstream. I, you know, I've always been interested in um, how public debates try to get at uh, public morality. You know, when people are trying to set limits on what they think is right and wrong or good and bad in society. So for me, it's been, you know, um, how do you know when something is um, important enough to be labeled art and, yeah. and therefore protected, you know, yeah. and as almost something uh, sacred? Yeah. Same thing with censorship, things like that. So I've always been interested in these sort of these public debates about things that can be intensely private yeah. or, or intensely moral. Yeah. And so it's sort of a natural extension of that. Yeah. I, I, censorship debates over movies was wrapped up in uh, religion, religious sure. institutions, especially the Catholic Church, for a long time. And um, I've, I've, you know, really since my training at OU, I've been interested in Reinhold Niebuhr. Yeah. 
Mm. And his his very openly public uh, wrestling with these these enormous questions, everything yeah. from the social justice of workers to uh, the moral implications of of dropping atomic weapons. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, very few people had, could write about all those different <laughs> topics and do it well, yeah. like he can, yeah. like he did. And that, um, in a sense, too, that uh, I think we. We we haven't. I don't think we grappled with the legacy of war since the Vietnam War all that well until after 9/11, and then all of a sudden people thought to themselves, I mean, "What have we gotten ourselves into?" Yeah. Uh, you know, we we seem to be so clear about what needs to be done after this you know this horrific event. Why 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 do we think it's it's so easy or so clear? Yeah. And uh, the writing that came after that was just amazing. The outpouring, and I, I saw a lot of great stuff from mm-hmm. religious historians yeah. and, and theologians. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite people to read is Stanley Hauerwas, mm. obviously. He's, yeah. he's a big, he plays a big role in a couple of chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, same kind of thing. I, you know, I think Stanley Hauerwas is one of these guys who uh, started out very much in sort of the, the mold, uh, theological mold of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, but has, and, and while he's remained in sort of that public role of yeah. Reinhold Niebuhr, he is he is very decidedly not um, following Reinhold Niebuhr's theological position. He's very much a pacifist and um, and finds his relationship to the nation to be very conflicted. And I hmm. find it endlessly fascinating, you know, uh, to to see how he he negotiates in some ways his role as a public intellectual in America. And his and his position um, as a Christian first and an American a distant second. Yeah, yeah. I, there was yeah. another name that I really enjoyed. I was like, "Oh, Stanley Hauerhaus. I knew yeah. this guy. I've read about. <laughs> right. I've read just a little bit." And I, you know, that's what excites me about contemporary history um, is that you know yeah. people that you know. I actually kind of I met him and I met him one time, and I'm like, "Oh, I I kind of know him. He doesn't know I know him." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that yeah. that was great. Um, so let's yeah. start off. I mean, you begin the book um, in the aftermath of the the atomic bomb, uh, in the mm-hmm. aftermath of World War Two. Why don't you begin talking about sort of civil – what you mean by civil religion incorporated? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, immediately after World War II and uh, with the atomic bombing of Japan, there is a very small uh, debate which ends fairly quickly about the moral, moral implications of using the atomic bomb. Yeah. For the most part, all the churches line up behind the righteousness, you know, the rightness mm-hmm. of doing this. Um, but then something interesting happens. Um while the churches don't come out to challenge the nation, almost immediately religion grows in sort of cultural significance for lots of Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, churches begin to fill, uh, fill again, and there are new churches opening up. Uh, there is a real, seems to be a real need for a uh, theological perspective on the Cold War and, and politics in general. Yeah. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr shows up on the cover of Time magazine, but I mean, he's, he's one of many. I mean, uh, Billy Graham is really important yeah. this time. Uh, there's this, you know, really a, a, a group of, of Catholic um, bishops and cardinals that become quite famous, hmm. both in local politics, but also at, you know, on the national level. Uh, Cardinal Spellman is, is certainly one of them. Um, and I, what I saw was, uh, as the, the importance of religion sort of rises among Americans culturally, that they mm-hmm. they they need this source of understanding of this world that seems a bit confusing and yeah. in the aftermath of a terrible war. It's not surprising that politicians say we should probably build on that too and yeah. use it in some way to relate to the people and, and organize them. And so, what I saw, when I, what I mean by incorporation is that 
Uh, I see Truman and Eisenhower, but also, you know, even just Congress in general, incorporating religion into the politics of the nation to affirm that the nation is a good place, that it is going to do good in the world, that that the nasty things that are going to be need to be done from whatever dropping the bomb on Japan, you know, dropping the bombs on Japan to building more nuclear weapons to fighting wars in Korea and elsewhere. All these things, while bad in some way, um, we can find something good through them. Yeah. You know, if we if if we keep a sort of moral compass um, uh, about us, and that's again, it's dangerous in one sense because uh, by incorporating religion into the politics, there's no natural check on that use of religion. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to bring in a few people like Niebuhr who try to call people on this, who try yeah. to call politicians on this. And I, I still think, you know, Niebuhr's irony of American history is, um, is as, re- as relevant today as it was when he wrote it in the late 40s and early 50s. Yeah. Because it gets at that sort of core irony that Lincoln, I believe, was, was on to as well, you know, that we're, the nation's going to fight wars. And as it got more and more powerful, those wars were going to become more and more consequential in many ways for the rest of the world. How do you deal with that? You know, a nation that's sort of designed to want to be good, to be a beacon to the rest of the world, and yet it's going around killing people, you know, or causing a lot of destruction. How do you square those two things? Yeah. And that's not an easy – it's not an easy public debate to have. And um, I think religion – this is where religion can become – uh, very interesting. Not not to settle the debate. I don't, you yeah. know. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people think civil religion does, is that it simply affirms, you know, uh, the nation's actions. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's this real attempt to say, listen, we do sort of generally accept that the nation we want to be we want to be America. We want to have something good to believe in, but we also accept that we've been doing some pretty bad things. So how do we evaluate our actions? That's that's religion. It's how we relate to the sort of higher ideals that we'd all like to aspire to through the nation. And uh, so I think that's where it begins. I think in many ways uh, Niebuhr was trying to um, create a check on what was happening in the 40s and the 50s, mm-hmm. and that Eisenhower was Eisenhower was one of the most brilliant practitioners of, of civil religion. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that, um, you know, I was thinking about we're talking about the, the whole sort of spate of scholarship that's come out in the last 10 years about yeah. sort of American religion, sort of mainstreaming the history of, of religion in America and political and, and, and foreign policy and intellectual history. And it, yeah. it strikes me um, – it, it, and also at the same time, there is this sort of revival of, of Niebuhr. And, you know, mm-hmm. and in parts of the American culture and that, you know, I mean, it's obvious that it's 9-11, right? And the yeah, war in Iraq yeah, that absolutely. has brought all of this to the fore that, you know, I know my own work, I've, I've had to contend in my own way, writing history of humanitarian intervention with Iraq and sort of my rearview mirror and thinking, oh, my goodness, yeah. you know, that, that sort of thing. And um, I mean, do you think we're kind of at that point? I mean, if the Civil War gave us. Lincoln and, you know, um, mm-hmm. Lincoln's idea of civil religion and World War II is the central moment and, you know, sort of how Americans think about God and war. Are, is yeah. 9-11 and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, or is this, are we at like this third kind of seminal point? At this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we, in some ways, we'd like to think we are. Yeah. And I, I, I don't really, 
I think we're still in, um, I, I guess, I guess I, what I would say is that we're still using the language and the metaphors and, and sort of um, almost the, the analysis that we apply to World War II yeah, and yeah. the Cold War yeah. to understand what we're doing now. Yeah. So I don't see a real great sea change. Yeah. And I think guys like, like Harawas really wanted it. I really yeah. wanted the last few years to be a time of, uh, of accounting mm-hmm. uh, for this stuff. Jim Wallace, I think, who... Yeah. I'm sort of ambivalent about in some yeah. ways. Um, I think he also saw it in those terms. He really wanted people to, to consider, well, what are they supporting and why? And what are the sources of allegiance do they have? And what are mm-hmm. the sources of, of, of moral analysis can they call upon? Uh, but it, I don't think it has been that. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the drone policies yeah. uh, also bring up some interesting questions about sure. just war. Yeah. Um, so I, it's really open. I, I actually think right now in some ways it's great for scholars who are interested in using religion because it, there's there's so much uh, interesting debate out there right now and and you know just war theories become a really interesting topic yet again yeah so yeah i guess yeah. If, if if this were a seminal we wouldn't be sort of still relying on niebuhr we might have our own niebuhr uh, i know? think that's an, i think that's a real problem in some ways yeah yeah often we, you know, we sort of use niebuhr you know in a way that um doesn't leave him to his own era where yeah. he was that's what he was writing about that was that's yeah. what he was influenced by and while he may ask questions that we can apply hmm. we've got to we've got to do some more heavy lifting now and not just you know wring our hands and say well we're all Niberian you know <laughs> bad things must be done in order for good things to happen I mean it's just it's such a an awful uh, sim- um, simplification of, of Niebuhr's thought yeah no you're right it is it's sort of that's enough you know, to sort of go, well, you know, Niebuhr would say this, and isn't that awful? But, you know, I'm right. a realist at the end of the day, you know, but a tragic realist, and there we go. I think right. right, right. Oh, man. You Which, just, you know, you, in the middle of the Cold War, you can understand, to a certain extent, being yeah. a tragic realist, you know? Yeah, yeah no, no, no. You've, uh, man, Ray, you're making me think. I had my <laughs> pat answer. I just, you know, I had that memorized in my head. And now um, I think you're right. Um, so let's, I mean, you're, you move on into the 1960s and, and you're talking yeah. about John Kennedy. And how, talk about Vietnam and its role in sort of shaping yeah. a civil religion. Yeah, so it, this, this chapter was interesting because in some ways, you know, uh, Vietnam is, of course, a great example of failure. Yeah. Yet at the same time, it's not it's not so simple. And I think this is where uh, Bella is interesting because unlike uh, I, I don't use Bella as as a sociologist as a religion, I use him as an historical actor. Yeah. You know, he comes to terms of civil religion because he finds Vietnam shaking the very foundations of of the idealism ideology that Americans had trusted was there. Yeah. And the person who no doubt you know exemplifies this, who bat, who wrestles with this more than anybody else, is Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. You know, he, King uses, uh, you know, our better angels, basically, to get people to think about race relations in the United States and, yeah. the, and the expansion of civil liberties. And then he has to, in, you know, the, in 1967, think about the Vietnam War really for the first time. You know, he's in 66, 67, he's beginning to turn towards a new stage in his uh, his political thinking, and he has to turn his argument against itself in some ways. He's saying that uh, if this war continues, it will undermine the nation and all that it, all that it stands for this war. And, and even though it, you know, has nothing to do in some ways with race relations or with social justice, uh, it's the United States, I guess, you know, conceivably could have picked up from Vietnam and left. 
but he but he knows that the way that people are not reacting to the war is incredibly troubling. Yeah. And he's wondering if this is not, in fact, a bigger problem than race in America. Hmm. Hmm. You know, that yeah, yeah. Uh, the killing of thousands and thousands of people, thousands of miles away, seems not to really affect people very much. You yeah. Know? And it certainly doesn't seem to give the government any pause or any any uh, just you know, any uh, real reason to justify all the violence. So for him, it's incredibly disturbing. But then, you know, near the end of the chapter, I flipped to Newhouse, Richard John Newhouse, who, yeah. although he becomes a Catholic in the early, very early 90s, he was yeah. a Lutheran minister, young young Lutheran minister in the 1970s, and was King's contact in New York City. He marched with King when King came to New York, and he was very much anti-war, anti-Vietnam yeah. War. But by the near the end of the war, Newhouse writes this fascinating article about the churches and the Vietnam War. And he says, you know, we have to be real careful. While the church leaders in the United States may have come to the conclusion the war was wrong and bad, their parishioners, you know, their congregations have not. And, you know, we should be very, you know, basically saying to his, his fellow uh, church leaders, be very careful how you talk about uh, what to do next. You know, this is, this is not the time to say that, you know, you're going to bring the wrath of God down upon the United States as mm-hmm. if it is a person. Yeah. Don't, you know, sort of moralize the nation into an individual. It doesn't operate in that way. Yeah. Um, but your parishioners, you know, your congregation is going to think that you are doing that if you condemn uh, the nation, you know, categorically. And it's it's fascinating because what he's basically doing, uh, Newhouse, before it happens, he's he understands that there's a culture war brewing yeah. over the legacy of the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. war in general in the United States. And um, that, you know, Newhouse with a lot of things, but I think he was really, really bright when it came to contemporary politics. Yeah, so. I, this was the Richard John Newhouse I didn't recognize. I had no idea about his uh, – I didn't – I read him in what first things or new yeah, criterion. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew, yeah. yeah, I knew him in the two thousands, and I had no idea he cut his teeth uh, marching with King. <laughs> right, but you know, it's like so many of the new left, or uh, I should say, the uh, um, well, the neocons, which is yeah. a bad label for some of these folks. But like a lot of neocons, he was one of these guys who had marched against, you know. Um, Racism, yeah. like war, you know, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. turned around and at some point decided that was the wrong way to go yeah. for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Know? No, no, no. But I was just I thinking, think top among them that he felt that – no, I think top among them he felt that you know, people who were – who had come out of the Vietnam War uh, against the nation had gone too far. And, and that's a very interesting thing to study because it's not so simple. It's not simply they became you – know, that uh, they became anti-anti-American. You know, uh, it's a very interesting dance. It's academic. It's scholarly. It's theological. Yeah, yeah it's all these things. And the culture wars among my colleagues uh, that uh, we do the Society for U.S. Intellectual yeah. History. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of us think that the culture wars will become sort of like uh, progressivism or pragmatism. You know, to uh, this generation of scholars, it will be one of those organizing tools. Oh wow! Yeah, for the historiography. You know, oh, yeah, and uh, yeah. So that's that's really where the rest of the book sets out, you know, to, to talk about civil religion in relation in many ways to the culture wars. You, you did an, a, a nice job of, I mean, speaking of neocons, uh, I think, I believe you called them the, the new neocons, actually, which is, I thought, right. the best way of talking about them. Um, yeah. And I know I'm skipping ahead, but I liked how yeah. you kind of made the difference between the neocons of the 70s and the neocons yeah. of the 2000s. Do you just want to talk about that just briefly? Yeah, so... 
what you get uh, is a, a much a different breed of neocon in, um, let's just say, like the sort of the Bush era. Yeah, yeah. You know, where the optimism uh, overwhelms whatever pessimism had been with the mm. older neocons. Yeah, yeah. And that, again, is really for people who had read Niebuhr and thought that they were like Niebuhr uh, as, as a neocon. These new neocons were so naive. Yeah. You know, to think that they could walk into um, other countries and convince them by mortar fire that <laughs> the United States was doing good. Yeah. You know, that it's just it was just crazy. Um, but at the same time, it, it wasn't like um, there was a great alternative. And they understood in many ways. The, the old neocons understood that the new neocons were using their moment to take full, you know, sort of full advantage of the moment to make the nation into something what they, they all thought it needed to, it needed to go into a better direction. It needed to go beyond the Clinton era. It needed to be to affirm some sort of um, romanticized version of an yeah. older America. And, and maybe just maybe, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq would have been those, uh, those events to do it. But uh, again, the old neocons, I think many of them also thought, but there's always that possibility that we're, you know, we're basically supporting a disaster. And of course, you know, for the most part, that's that's what begins to happen. And I, I, again, I see Newhouse, who is he's really one of the central subjects of of a book that I'm I'm working on now. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. But Newhouse's arc is fascinating. He's very supportive of the first Gulf War, yeah, of Bush's uh, Bush's wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But by near the end of his life, um, and near the end of Bush's administration, he is really sort of distraught over how badly things have gone. Hmm. And, uh, he's, you know, I don't know how I mean, I haven't really gotten into the most contemporary stuff. Uh, I haven't really interviewed many of his colleagues yet, yeah. but I have a feeling that he was, you know, uh, questioning his own uh, logic behind huh. supporting Bush early on. Yeah. Well, I know I skipped ahead. I mean, but let's just go back a little bit. I apologize. Sure. Um, but talking about Reagan and Carter, um, and I, and uh-huh. I think yeah. that, that made a lot of sense putting those two together, talking about civil religion reborn. Yeah. I just want to talk about Vietnam and its relation to, especially Ronald Reagan. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. You know, so Reagan, Reagan is is no fool. He knows that <laughs> uh, it's sort of a sort of a third rail, right? In in trying to talk about uh, uh, an American legacy, how do you talk about Vietnam? For Carter, he, he's just going to say, yeah, it was awful. And so let's learn our lesson, never do that again. Yeah. And Reagan is saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not everybody thinks that. And yeah. it's not a simple lesson. And so how, how do we move forward? Now, Reagan understands that there are plenty of people who find meaning through sacrifice for the nation. Yeah. You know, for them, there is nothing greater than that. Now, yeah. you discount, you dismiss all those people by, by denouncing the Vietnam War and finding one lesson in it. That's what he saw Carter doing. So it was very easy for Reagan to say, well, he, you know, uh, he's soft on this and soft on that, even though Carter really wasn't in foreign policy terms. But I think uh, rhetorically, uh, it was very easy for Reagan to use it as a weapon against Carter. But I also think that Reagan understood that if he if he used um, civil the sort of civil religious rhetoric uh, well, it gave him some room to maneuver beneath it. You know, he was no great fan of fighting wars that could not be won very easily at a very little cost. Mm-hmm. So do we go to war during Reagan's time? We, the Americans, not yeah. really. Yeah. You know, he certainly supports lots of people killing other people, mm-hmm. um, but there are not many Americans dying during his administrations. Yeah. Um, you know, and when they do die, like he pulls out of Lebanon. Um, yeah. 
very quickly after the army barracks or the marine barracks are bombed. And, uh, you know, um, all of Central America is it's a terrible situation, but he's basically letting everybody else deal with that. He's not really the one um, to talk about it. What he likes to talk about is ending the Cold War and doing away with all nuclear weapons. I mean, yeah. The second term is basically monopolized by that. Yeah. It's extraordinary, you know, Yeah. where uh, a lot of the neocons he's leaving behind. Uh, he's, he's leaving behind most evangelicals yeah. uh, who had voted for him, who had this almost apocalyptic, you know, uh, version of uh, – of uh, mutually assured destruction, you know? Yeah, we're supposed uh, to it, it, um, have a nuclear war which would bring Jesus back and everything would be better. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, well, at the very, yeah. I mean, if, if that's what it takes, okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. but we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to, uh, not going to brook any compromise with, um, with the Antichrist, with the yeah. Soviets. Yeah. So, you know, and we're certainly not going to use terms like detente and things like that. You mm-hmm. know, so Reagan just jumps over everybody and says, oh, that's fine. All right. Well, I'll just call them what they are. They're evil, but also say that they've lost. It's over. And I think anybody, nobody really expected that to happen. Like nobody expected a president like Reagan to say, yeah, well, I mean, the Cold War is won and it's won by us. So now, now what do both sides say? So you have everybody who's been opposed to the nuclear, um, uh, to increase nuclear weapons saying, oh, well, now what is our position if, if the president of the United States is declaring the Cold War over? And you have on the other side all the, the neocons and hawks saying, well, this is what we wanted all along. We wanted to win the Cold War. So – Reagan has it on, on both sides. He's, he's won. He's, he's beaten both sides in many ways. It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and so, you know, at the end of the Cold War, you know, this is where you kind of move into what you call civil religion at bay. And, I mean, this is right. where you get into the, the neocons and George H.W. Bush. Do you want to talk about how yeah. sort of early post-Cold War era, how this fits in? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, the, I really enjoyed this the, chapter. This was good. This chapter oh, good. was awesome. It really was. Good. Yeah. I mean, George H.W. Bush more good more stuff needs to be written about him he's a very interesting guy yeah. and to me he's he's this interesting character whose life had been defined by war i mean <laughs> you know he he goes into world war 2 he uh, volunteers right out of high school um, and for the, for the most part he gives his life over to the nation and and in, in some sort of military capacity you know whether he's fighting or he's head of the cia or uh, he's um, watching you know the cold war unfold from various positions in the government uh, and then he here he is after the war is over. The war is an organizing principle is gone from a guy who only knew war basically um, as as an adult. And so I, I think he has some um, crisis of I would say a, a crisis of definition, crisis of identity in a sense. Yeah. And when he goes into the first Persian Gulf War, I mean, he's using uh, the logic that uh, would have been very uh, accepted in World War II, or at least would have sounded familiar to those who believe that World War II was a completely good war. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's wrestling with religious advisors who are saying, you can't do this. It's, it's really, is it really necessary to send tens of thousands of troops in there? And, and he's saying, well, listen, there are moral atrocities going on in there. Who's going to come to the people's aid? You know, it's, all, it's up to the United States. Uh, we are the we are the the beacon, you know. And sometimes you have to be uh, powerful uh, to stop great moral tragedy. And so, you know, this is this is his feeling. And of course, he's backed up by the probably the greatest coalition since World War II, you know, of of countries. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's a one-term president, so yeah. he falls off the cliff. Yeah, you know, the war goes really well, but really quickly. Um, nobody in the United States is really all that interested. Actually, much like uh, after World War II. 
in thinking about uh, their relationship to the country through the military. You know, yeah. I mean, they're pretty tired of, yeah. of war. Yeah. And so instead of instead of real war, you get the culture wars. Yeah. You know, they're sort of the, uh, the the substitute for that. And people are trying to figure out how to define the United States uh, as as a single entity. And while they're doing that, they're ripping it apart. Because there are all these different factions that are trying to, uh, to define uh, what is the most important term to identify with the United States, what is the most important source of, uh, of American identity, you know, what should be sort of the, the, the fundamental question, you know, the first question. And, of course, that's where first things comes from. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really exactly. out of that crisis that yeah. they say, listen, there are first principles that we all should understand. And, and that was just, it was just another, another uh, player in the culture wars. I mean, and this is um, where, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. this is where, you know, your new neocons come to the fore. And right, I loved it. You, right. you kind of talk about the uh, the Kagan and Crystal essay toward a neo-Reaganite yeah. foreign policy, which I remember yeah. reading as an undergrad. I still remember yeah. reading this article. Um, and, yeah. you know, tell us about why this is so such a central article and, you know, and yeah. sort of how this sets the stage for the post the, the, nine, the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, when I and I, I, I was the same way. I remember reading it and thinking to myself, what they're trying to do is reclaim sort of uh, Reagan's thunder and yeah. how he used how he fought the Cold War. But when I when I reread it, I realized what they were asking for was not Reagan, but almost like an older version of of a militaristic America that I don't think ever actually existed. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And uh, it was it was this sort of uh, strange interpretation of what World War II did to the American soul. You know, it sort of steeled it for the Great Cold War. That yeah. Americans won. Of course, nobody after World War II felt that way, and nobody <laughs> after World War II thought <laughs> that the Cold War was ever going to be over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, with the, so these guys come to the conclusion: is, is what really what we need is a more military-minded public. They have to understand the sort of sacrifices that are absolutely necessary. To have a great nation, have a nation that's worth investing in, dying for, killing for. I, I, listen, at the end of the uh, essay, they're pretty, almost pretty much calling for some sort of grand military conflict. You know, what we need is war. Yeah. You know, to make it clear what it is that's most important in life. Now, do they, you know, seek out um, to manufacture a war just for the hell of it? No. Yeah. I, I think they like. Um, like a lot of those new neocons, they were incredibly optimistic about what the United States, what its power, its unmatched power at that time, yeah. was capable of doing. You know, and uh, sure, I mean, if the United States went around the world and just sort of with its, its, its you know, a magic wand of missiles, uh, turned things into democracies, turned countries into democracies, it, it really would have been, uh, you know, sort of a, a historical moment that was completely unprecedented. You know, never before had you know, a revolutionary force. Uh, been matched with with such a powerful military force, but we know that didn't happen. So, so it's this combination of sort of the the, the economic might of the United States in the 1990s, and these seemingly, you know, at least from afar on CNN, you know, yeah. the, the successes of the Balkan Wars um, yeah. and and Kosovo, yeah. and you're like, oh, well, American military can do good things. Humanitarian intervention is awesome. Um, and of course, it has to. That's I mean, that's the question, right? I mean, it's not just that it does good things; it has to do good things. You know, it's sort of it's sort of incumbent upon the United States to do these good things. Yeah, yeah. You know, Meet, meets foreign policy crisis called 9/11, a coherent yeah. set of ideas tailor made to hand over to fit a particular crisis. And right. you know, that that's the thing that I've been you know I, I kind of dabble in the history of humanitarian intervention, and yeah. you know, it's the you know I was a staunch advocate um and then i look back and like how 
drunk the liberal hawks were, and I call myself a liberal right. hawk. And you know, yeah. and and you know, we I, I think I think without the liberal hawks backing the war in Iraq, maybe I fool myself, but I think the war in Iraq would have been a heck of a lot more hard, more difficult to wage without having yeah. cover from the the political left. Um, but do you just want to talk about yeah. um, civil religion forsaken and how you know sort of yeah it in this book? So I so I, I end it probably predictably, saying that <laughs> by um, what what nine eleven does is that it exposes again the sort of uh, paradox of a religion because the country needed some way to talk about itself being you know, a, the promise of the world or somehow good yeah. after 9-11 because it just been attacked. I mean, yeah. you know, it would have been stupid not to have that sense. And of course, you know, many people, many preachers, many religious leaders are, are coming together that, um, you know, the National Cathedral speech that Bush gave yeah. was sort of this shining moment of that. But then, you know, you read somebody like uh, Susan Sontag and she says, sure, sure, let's all mourn together. Let's not be stupid together, you know. And I think that's where civil <laughs> religion is is indeed forsaken. It's we had probably the greatest outpouring of goodwill towards the United States uh, in its history. Yeah. And what did we do? We you know we attacked a, a country. Uh, we attacked Iraq in such a way that we made sure that that coalition would fall apart. Did we you know did any at this point is anybody defending that that uh, we went in with the right plan that we that we knew. <laughs> Uh, how to react, you know, yeah. uh, to the disaster would follow. Um, but even more than that, it, you can you can see it as there's this transition moment um, after the attacks in Afghanistan begin, which are fairly limited, very quickly. It's a fairly circumscribed war, there, yeah. you know. And, you know, uh, Kabul is liberated. You know, uh, girls are going back to school. It's really, yeah. in some ways, a very good feel-good story within the first 12 months. Yeah. But then you get the build up to uh, the Iraq War, and the language changes. It's all of a sudden, it goes from America has been attacked to America needs uh, to create, you know, change in the Middle East, and this is the way to do it. You know that Saddam Hussein is simply a threat, an existential threat yeah. to freedom around the world. That, that it's just it's so disconnected from how. Um, most Americans and most people around the world had viewed the United States immediately after 9/11, and there was no attempt to sort of, you know, bridge the gulf between the two. And I mean, that's where you start to get this this real great disconnection between um, some of the religious leaders who were still supportive of the country after 9/11, and those who are beginning to dissent from, break away from uh, what the nation is doing in Iraq. And I, I use, you know, Newhouse and Harawas again to sort of talk about this because it's the, the debate is pretty much the same as it was over the first Gulf War. And that's important to realize that uh, the terms have been there all along, you know, how we how we talk about these things. And so is is this kind of one of your kind of larger themes that you want to sort of address, kind of what Martin Luther King was talking about, that, um, you know, the the moral crisis of Vietnam is sort of our moral crisis today, a state of semi-permanent yeah. war, um, right. drone strikes where, you know, thousands of civilians are either killed or injured across. Right. And right. Americans, even on the political left, are generally sort of like, eh, okay, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, how do we talk about it? You know, how do you deal with it? Uh, do we do if they care? Fine. I mean, then America should get ready to reap what it's sowing then, you know? But if we keep sort of wringing our hands every once in a while about, these strikes or about war itself and that it doesn't, uh, that the United States is better than its actions. Well, what the heck does that mean? 
you know, uh, um, what, what I mean, what I'm, you know, as a historian, right? Yeah. What I'm interested in is how people construct their arguments about difficult subjects. You know, yeah. that it's not, it's not, it never is it very simple what the solution is. Yeah. But how do we go about doing it? And what are the patterns? What are the trends? Who gets to, who gets to speak? And, and how are certain views incorporated into official policy? When, does, when do official policies change? Yeah. Carter was different than Nixon and Johnson. Why? You know, Reagan was different than Carter. You know, what was what did Reagan learn in some ways from Carter? Yeah. Um, so that, that's I mean, you know, why did Bush do what he did, even though you know the sort of this sort of neo Reaganite uh, foreign policy that he wanted to adopt? It was uh, it was really a uh, a strange interpretation of what Reagan had actually done during yeah. the administration. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm um, interested in that kind of stuff. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're interested in that. No, kind that's, of stuff. yeah, that's what I'm interested. In. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, you know, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate this book because it, you know, I've been thinking lately about the drone strikes and you know yeah. just how we how you know this has been in the news lately, and I mean you've made me realize I'm, I'm far too blasé, you know that at the very least what are our <laughs> questions that we're not contending yeah. with this that at the very least if we're okay yeah. with it we need to somehow be the path to being okay with it needs to be tortured if you're okay with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Right, and right. It's just, we're far too satisfied. It seems to me. Is yeah. that kind of, yeah. am I yeah, saying anything? And, and, you know, and the thing is oftentimes we're far too okay with it because we use sort of religious arguments to cover up the difficult parts, the difficult questions, you know, that, well, it's God's will or, <laughs> well, you know, bad things happen to good people. And that's simply, you know, and sometimes good people have to do bad things. That's, you know, these are, these are questions I think that that, um, that Lincoln had to take head on, you yeah. know, in a country that was ripped apart by war and yet yeah. that was interpreting that war through the religion. And he was trying to say, think about how you are using your religion. I mean, are you really, you know, do you, are you, do you, are you really prepared for the implications or, or the weakness of your argument? You know, hmm. at least think about it. And I think that's where Harawas often is, you know. Hmm. He often says, uh, he and I have been corresponding about this. Hmm. And, and you know, he says, you know, Americans have plenty of faith. Why do they need the religion? And uh, he's absolutely right about that. That's his greatest. Um, uh, con- that's his sort of his greatest contribution to hammering civil religion. He says, "Yeah, it exists in some bizarre way. It's certainly not a legitimate faith. <laughs> but my God, why don't why don't Americans use the faith they've got to keep themselves out of using or relying on civil religion to seemingly justify a lot of these terrible things? Oh, interesting. Or to, or to get away from the questions about them, you know." Wow, the, I, the irony of the most devout, developed country in the world not using its actual spiritual right. religion when confronting right. the questions in which right. one would argue you would need religion the most. Um, right. Well, this book made me think. Um, Great. You, you mentioned what, – what's your next project, Ray? You're, is it Richard so, Newhouse? Yeah, it's going to be sort of a, collect, uh, sort of a collective uh, intellectual biography of Catholics – uh, and war and peace. So more or less from the just before Vatican II through to the present. Oh man! And I'm looking at sort of the transition that the Catholic Church underwent uh, during those years from being, you know, quite a bit on board with you know the United States government's military policy and wars, and then being very critical of it by the 1970s and 80s, and then coming back to being much more supportive of it by the 90s and 2000s. Um, I'm just I'm interested. You know, uh, it's one of those gaps I think that would be. It needs to be filled, and it definitely raises some fascinating questions about how how people use uh, faith 
um, in a time of war. Huh. So, wow, you're going to have a really interesting cast of characters. What, Michael Novak? Yes. Newhouse. Yeah, exactly. Harrington. George Weigel, Newhouse. Yeah, I mean, from Murray on up, basically. John Courtney Murray on up. Oh, and man. all the bishops. Yeah, Bernadine in Chicago. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 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 Huh. yeah O'Connor in New York. I mean, O'Connor's a really interesting person that very little has, very little uh, good has been written about yet because, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat new. You know? Yeah. Now, he was, but he was very interesting. He was such a towering political figure in the 1980s and it seems like you know we don't have a a bishop in in the u.s who behaves in in a similar fashion today. yeah that that wow okay well all right well i already got you booked for the for the next book okay (laughs) and the way you write what this will be out in six months so (laughs) (laughs) i wish yeah i do have one coming out in about um uh, sometime probably next year on franciscans (laughs) because i teach in franciscan school uh, Franciscans and media in, 20, in uh, basically 20th century America. It's been really interesting uh, uh, to do this. It's a smaller book. It's about 125 pages or so. Uh-huh. But it's been really interesting to do. So it's been been a pleasure. Wow. Well, Ray, uh, thank you very much. Uh, okay, God Jeff, War, thank you. American Civil Religion Since 1945 by Rutgers Press. Um, go out, read it. Well, hold on first. Buy it, then read it, and then tell your friends. <laughs> okay. Have That's a good day, right. Ray. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Uh-huh. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with uh, Ray Haberski, and you are so inclined to go out and buy his book. And uh, tune in next time uh, on New Books and Politics, where we talk to uh, an author about, well, just as the title says, a new book in politics.